My name is Dr. Devinder Singh, and I'm the Chief of Plastic Surgery at the University of Miami and Jackson Health Systems. I'm delighted to be here with you today to discuss surgical site infections. These are our disclosures, learning objectives. Every plastic surgeon knows that the skin is naturally under tension. We are experts at camouflaging incisions, hiding them in natural creases and uh, in the skin lines, referred to as the Langer lines or the relaxed skin tension lines, RSTL. Uh, these are very important to take into consideration when closing the skin. There are tried and true methods to close skin incisions and they include sutures, staples, skin glues, tapes, and combinations of all of the above. Similarly, there are a variety of things that you can put over your surgical incision, what we would simply call a dressing. Of course, there's standard gauze, which is by far the standard of care. There are other advanced dressings like hydrocolloids or growth factors, even cultured skin. But one of the things I'm going to spend a fair amount of time talking about today is my experience with applying a vacuum dressing onto the surgical site, otherwise referred to as negative pressure therapy. Before we get there, it's important to take a broader view of surgical site infection in the United States. And uh, this has been a persistent and notorious problem all around the country. And many centers have developed protocols to try to lower the risk of surgical site infection. And some of these protocols can include chlorhexidine uh, baths, chlorhexidine wipes the day before or the morning of surgery, nasal decolonization with mupiracine, preoperative hair removal with clippers, perioperative administration of IV antibiotics prior to the surgical incision. And of course, surgical techniques matter we know that asepsis, hemostasis, and obliteration of dead space, along with gentle tissue handling, are very important. And there's a growing appreciation of the physiology in the perioperative period and how that might impact surgical site infection rates. So managing glucose, managing the oxygenation, controlling temperature, and being mindful of volemia have all been associated with surgical site infection rates. One particular bundle that comes out of uh, JAMA surgery from Duke University in 2014, uh, looking at colorectal surgery, uh, really applied all of these different things and they broke it down into preoperative, operative and postoperative interventions, uh, including the chlorhexidine wipes and antibiotics before incision uh, and so on and so forth. And what they found when they instituted this protocol compared to the group uh, when their protocol was not in place, they did notice a statistically significant decrease in the surgical site infection rate uh, in their colorectal surgery. So the point is paying attention to these steps, uh, these protocols, these bundles, they do work and we can make a dent in the surgical site infection rate. That being said, I have to air some dirty laundry. Every surgeon has complications. If you don't have complications, you're not a busy surgeon. If you don't have complications, you're just not operating enough. And uh, these are a couple of complications uh, that I have seen. Uh, one is an abdominal wall infection after complex ventral hernia repair, and the other is a typical periprosthetic breast infection after mastectomy and breast reconstruction. So how do we uh, identify who's at risk for these problems? Well, of course, uh, you can take one look at this picture, a picture speaks a thousand words, and see that a person like this would be at risk for surgical site occurrences, including surgical site infection. This patient was referred uh, for umbilical hernia repair, and yet has uh, morbid obesity, uh, abdominal paniculus, and in the abdominal paniculus, there's lymphedema. 
otherwise known as massive localized lymphedema. Clearly, this person is high risk. There are risk factors that can compromise healing and contribute to surgical site infection, and it's important to uh, remember them. Advanced age, wound infection, obesity, diabetes, radiation, nicotine, malnutrition, steroids. These are pertinent positives to consider when meeting your patients in the preoperative phase because controlling these issues, if possible, can decrease the surgical site infection rate. And what of the economic impact? The stakes for surgical site infections are very high. In the United States, it's been associated with a nine and a half day increase in your hospitalization. Charges have been linked to an additional nearly $40,000, and it costs the US system over $3 billion annually. And of course, one part of that is because readmission is necessary five times more often. So uh, one paper from Harvard Medical School published in JAMA sought to quantify this. And they looked at the top drivers of nosocomial infection or hospital acquired infections. And they discovered that the surgical site infection was the primary driver at approximately $20,000 per case. Number two on their list was ventilator-associated pneumonia at $40,000 per case, and then central line-associated bloodstream infection at $45,000 per case, antibiotic-associated C. diff colitis at $11,000 per case, and at less than 1%, catheter-associated UTI at $896. This paper is very interesting, not only because it comes from Harvard and published in JAMA, but because it shows us where we should be concentrating our efforts to really make a difference in the economic stakes. We focus a lot on removing the Foley catheter early in the postoperative period so our patients avoid getting UTIs. And that's important. It's easy to manage and it makes a small difference, but where we should be focused is on the perioperative area where surgical site infection is actually the primary driver of a nearly $10 billion cost of nosocomial infection in the United States. So is there anything else we can do? Well, I'll put up this slide again from that, that paper uh, about colorectal surgery and I, because I like the way that the authors broke it down between preoperative, intraoperative, and postoperative interventions. And uh, I have found uh, in my experience, uh, a post-operative intervention that has made a difference. And uh, that is the use of negative pressure therapy dressings or incisional wound vac or prophylactic vac or closed incision negative pressure therapy. It goes by many different names, but the general idea is to apply and create a negative pressure environment directly over your surgical incision. Amazingly, uh, in 2018, the World Health Organization acknowledged prophylactic negative pressure wound therapy over surgical incisions as a possible suggestion and recommendation for the use to specifically reduce surgical site infection. They did make a note, which is important to take into account, that resources should be accounted for when applying these dressings. So can a dressing really improve outcomes, specifically surgical site infection? Well, this is the portfolio of these dressings. They're referred to as pre-vena, pre-vena dressings, and they come in all different shapes and sizes, uh, but generally uh, they all have a few things in common, including uh, a foam dressing. There'll be a contact barrier on the underside of that to protect the skin from the negative pressure. Uh, so that there's no maceration or blistering, and then a pump that is connected to the foam dressing to create the negative pressure environment, and then some sort of seal or occlusive drape, uh, in other words, tape, to uh, create a nice occlusive seal. What I'd like to do now is share with you some of the uh, preclinical evidence and some clinical evidence and some of my case studies uh, where I've had great experience with this in reducing surgical site uh, infection. 
Why does it work? Well, first and foremost, I believe it acts like a splint for the skin. Now, unlike traditional open negative pressure therapy dressings or good old wound vac, which we apply to an open wound, in that situation, we get a lot of drainage control and that's great. But in this uh, version of negative pressure therapy, remember the skin is closed. So there's not so much drainage that's coming through the incision and into the dressing and then through the tubing and into the vacuum pump and canister. More what's going on is that this is acting like a soft tissue splint for the skin. It's, uh, it's pulling the skin together. It's decreasing tension a little bit. And every plastic surgeon knows that tension and perfusion are inversely related. And so for these reasons, uh, I think the primary benefit is that it's reducing tension exactly where you need it, right at the incision margin. Of course, these dressings also stay on for much longer than a traditional piece of gauze. Uh, gauze may stay on for one or two days. Uh, this dressing is applied usually in the sterile environment of the operating room and stays on for five to seven days. In some cases, some of these uh, new dressings are now indicated for up to 14 days of therapy. So what's the preclinical evidence that supports some of this? Well, this comes from a computer model where the computer predicts the amount of tension in the area directly under the foam in the suture line. And in this particular uh, publication, they predicted that in the area under the foam, the soft tissues experienced 50% reduction in the amount of tension. In the laboratory, you can also replicate this. What you see here is a silicone sheet, which is meant to represent a skin model. Incisions are made and repaired with staples, and then the dressing is applied. And what's clever about this study is uh, the control group is the, is the uh, dressing with no vacuum, and the experimental group is the dressing with the vacuum on. Uh, so what they're really testing here is to see if, if the negative pressure itself is doing anything or if it's just a tape job that's helping holding things together. And what they found was that when the negative pressure therapy is applied, when the vacuum is actually applied, it was 50% harder to pull apart in an instrometer machine, which will pull until it disrupts and then measures that force in newtons. And going a little bit deeper into the preclinical world, this is an animal study. Now, to be clear, this is unpublished. Uh, this is just one animal, it's a pig, but there are two incisions uh, and the incisions were created at the same time, but dressed differently. On close up, you can see that on your left, the incision was treated with gauze and on the right, the incision was treated with negative pressure therapy. And you can see dramatic differences between the two incisions. In the gauze incision, the, there's edema in the skin, the sutures are very tight, and there's pin cushioning. And I would say that the incision line itself is a little uh, open. And none of that is what you see on the negative pressure side. The incision treated with negative pressure therapy as the dressing looks radically different. Particularly, there's no edema in the soft tissues, the incision line looks further along the healing pathway. The sutures look looser and there's no pin cushioning. So what about blood flow? Well, as we know, negative pressure when applied to the skin may help improve perfusion. And, and that might be one of its biggest impacts on affecting infection rates. So to get at that question, uh, one study looked at the lymphatic arm of the circulatory system. Remember, there are three arms to the circulatory system, arteries, veins, and lymphs. The lymphatic system is often neglected or forgotten, but it is an important part of the circulatory system. In any event, this study uh, did, looked at an animal model. They created dorsal wounds. They filled those wounds with nanospheres, and then they treated the wound with gauze or in another animal, they treated it with negative pressure. And then in a very clever study, they harvested the distant lymph node basins like the inguinal or axillary lymph nodes. And then they were able to calculate the concentration of these nanospheres in the distant lymph nodes. And what they found was remarkable. They found statistically significant differences 
In other words, the nanospheres were cleared more out of the dorsal back incisions in the group that was treated with negative pressure as seen by higher concentrations in the distant lymph node basin. It's a very early uh, indication, one of the first papers to suggest improved lymphatic clearance. And of course that could make a big difference in surgical site infection rate. And what of scars? Well, every plastic surgeon knows that scars are important to their patients. They're important to us. And scarring is multifactorial. The causes of scar can include inflammation, tension, melanin. On that list, probably tension is the most important. And so the question arises, does the early reduction of tension in the first week translate to any durable improvement in the scar? Well, this paper does seek to answer that in a small animal study. And they did find that after 40 days, when the animals were sacrificed and the scars were examined under histology, the deep dermis in the incisions treated with negative pressure was narrower. It was narrower. And what about blood flow itself, arterial blood flow? Well, this, this paper is an oldie but a goodie. It comes from 1997. It's one of the original negative pressure therapy papers that establishes the, uh, the fact that a gentle pressure at minus 125 improves blood flow. And if you crank up the negative pressure to minus 400, you actually decrease perfusion. Uh, and so uh, this was the paper by one of the inventors of wound vac in the first place that establishes minus 125 millimeters mercury as the proper level for negative pressure where there was a notable improvement in perfusion. So what does that look like when talking about these types of dressings? Well, this is one of my patients where I uh, was performing a complex abdominal wall reconstruction and I uh, was utilizing a technology called ICG angiography, which was providing uh, ability for me to see perfusion in the skin or blood flow in the skin. And I used it routinely to help guide my debridement of abdominal skin flaps. I also was routinely dressing these patients, these complex ventral hernia repairs, with negative pressure therapy dressings. And it occurred to me five or six days later to take the dressing off and repeat the angiogram of the skin. And what I found were significant differences in the uh, fluorescent signal indicating that perfusion was improving under these dressings over time. I did that repeatedly. Uh, this is a transverse paniculectomy incision. On your screen left is the uh, spy image on uh, the operating room table and the image after uh, five days of therapy. And there were significant increases in the perfusion units as seen by uh, the ICG angiogram. What about clinical uh, benefits? Well, amazingly, this therapy has been used since 2006 uh, by many different types of surgeons at this point. Uh, in 2021, lots of different surgical subspecialties are uh, publishing on the benefits of this therapy. And uh, this is one of the early uh, case studies looking at a sternotomy after uh, coronary artery bypass grafting. And one of the first papers coming out of uh, Germany in a single center, single surgeon series, although it was prospective and controlled to demonstrate that there was a significant decrease in the surgical site infection rate. These were uh, coronary artery bypass in uh, obese patients, all BMI over 30, uh, one group dressed with gauze, one group dressed with negative pressure, and uh, a significant notable difference in the infection rate. These results were uh, replicated in the orthopedic li literature. Uh, this is a multi-center trial, five different trauma centers, uh, which of course helps to decrease bias and uh, they found similar results in lower extremity open reduction internal fixation patients where one group was treated with gauze and the other group was treated with negative pressure therapy. They were able to reduce their infection and dehiscence rates nearly by half in a statistically significant fashion. And similarly in vascular surgery, uh, similar findings in, in a, a paper published in the Journal of Vascular Surgery, uh, they noted a 
decrease in femoral surgical site infections from 30% down to 6%. I was also similarly able to publish uh, these benefits in, in complex abdominal wall reconstruction patients where I noted uh, a decrease in the odds uh, by six uh, when using these dressings, uh, the decrease in the odds for developing a surgical site occurrence. In 2015, I published uh, the first meta-analysis looking at these dressings uh, across multiple surgical disciplines at the time the data was available. Uh, and what we found after we combined the data sets and performed a proper meta-analysis and published in our journal, the Journal of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery, was that there uh, was indeed a 50% reduction in the uh, uh, relative risk for surgical site infection. This is a couple of my patients that I'd like to share with you upon wrapping up. Uh, this was a patient who desired a breast uh, reconstruction. Uh, she required a double mastectomy and desired immediate reconstruction with implants in the prepectoral plane. And you can see what that appears like, uh, very thin flaps, uh, silicone implant and biological mesh. And I uh, placed these dressings directly over the surgical incision, including the nipple areolar complex. And this is what she looked like after three weeks. It's important for breast reconstruction patients, uh, I believe, uh, it really helps healing, particularly over the nipple areolar complex. Here she is in follow-up. And I also use it for my autologous reconstructions. This was a patient where I was harvesting the tissue from the lower abdomen and transplanting this tissue in order to make a right breast in a style of surgery referred to as a DIEP microvascular free tissue transfer or the deep flap. And uh, you may be wondering now, where will the negative pressure therapy dressing go? Will it go onto the recipient flap or will it go on the abdominal donor? And I do place them on the abdominal donor site. Uh, but one thing to notice is that I did make a small extension superiorly to cover some abdominal skin. That was a little bit of a game changer for me because it's uh, something that other surgeons have also started to do. There's this concept of not just covering our incisions, but actually covering the whole surgical site. And uh, there's a new dressing available now called the Provena Bella Restore, specifically designed for breast reconstruction patients uh, that covers not just the incision, but the entire mastectomy uh, surgical site itself. And uh, I've, I've uh, been using these dressings for over a year now uh, with, with what I think are great results. Uh, here's an example of another bilateral nipple sparing mastectomy direct to implant in the prepectoral plane. And uh, here she is uh, after her reconstruction in one stage after 14 days. And then finally, with my colleague, Dr. Gabriel, who is going to take over this session uh, next, we also published a follow-up meta-analysis very recently, which demonstrated a highly statistically significant uh, difference um, when comparing randomized controlled trials or when doing a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials. Uh, we found uh, that uh, in nearly 800 patients with 11 randomized controlled trials, uh, that patients were two and a half times more likely to get a surgical site infection in the gauze group compared to the negative pressure therapy group. So uh, the FDA has recognized some of these uh, some of these benefits and recently changed their indications. The on-label uh, indication for these Provena dressings now actually includes the fact that it can reduce the incidence of seroma and very importantly, it can reduce the incidence of superficial surgical site infection in class one and class two wounds. That's a, that's a very unusual indication and really speaks to the clinical benefit for these uh, dressings. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Singh. That was a wonderful presentation as always. And we're gonna be now focusing on more of a case-based discussion the interesting thing is when incisional negative pressure was introduced back in 2010, there was a lot of questions on how can we actually utilize this? How can we 
utilize it in our patients because it wasn't really anything new that incisions were being managed with negative pressure. In the past, we have put regular graniform on top of the incisions to help manage all the benefits that you just heard about from Dr. Singh. So the science is very clear. It's just how do we make it fit in our practice? So as we were thinking, and a lot of people were asking questions, so great, now we have another negative pressure device. Where, how does this fit in our practice? What are we gonna do with this? Well, we sat down and actually thought about it and, the and we published on it. And what we realized was when we're actually sitting down, just like anything else that we do, we start thinking about it. When we're dealing with closed incisions, they are at risk for surgical complications but those specifically fall into two different categories. One of those is incisions with a wound that it is at risk for seroma formation. So when you actually think about it, what is at risk for seroma formation? Large undermining because the lymphatics have been disrupted. Maybe there's not been quilting sutures that has been placed to close the dead space. Those are all going to be at risk for seroma formation. High BMI patients, because their adipocytes are hypertrophy. So what leads us to more of a avascular space, we don't have that much of lymphatics available to us due to the hypertrophy of the adipocytes. So they play a huge role in seroma formation. And lastly, any biologics or synthetics that are used within the base of the area that we're treating and closing directly over it can lead to seroma formation, leading to high risk of surgical complications, surgical side occurrences. There's another category that leads to surgical complications, just a plain old dehiscence. What can lead to dehiscence or what wounds are at risk for dehiscence. If you think about it, tight closure compromised flaps are gonna be at risk for dehiscence. Why is that tight closure? You're gonna have decreased blood flow to the area. Uh, you're creating a hypoxic environment. A compromised flap can easily also lead to a dehiscence because if the flap is compromised, there's not gonna be any healing. There's not gonna be any healing to the area where we're trying to treat. Repeated incisions through the same scar, depending on the nature of the scar, depending on the subcutaneous level that's available, scarpas that's available at that time, what has been um, already been denuded from prior incisions and surgical uh, management of the area can be quite complex and lead to complications. And lastly, risk factors that are you're all familiar with, diabetes, high BMI, smoker, history of radiation, soiling, which we will get into and discuss a specific case, and immunocompromised patients. So with that, uh, we're gonna jump into the cases and we're gonna cover all these areas. So don't worry, you're gonna see examples of every single uh, topic we just discussed. Our case one is a 65-year-old female with recurrent left breast cancer. This is her left axillary area that you're looking at. Patient has had a prior history of radiation and with the recurrent of the cancer and involvement of the skin, an unblocked resection is necessary. And she's had a prior scar from a lumpectomy that is present. This is following a modified radical mastectomy that was performed by our breast surgeon. This is the wound that we walked into. This is what the patient needed uh, closure for. Now, keep in mind, this is a patient who is elderly, is already compromised uh, with chemotherapy, and does need possible additional treatments after surgery. And usually we wanna address those within 30 days. Because the flap that was utilized from the back, this is a latissimus flap. It's a pedicle latissimus flap, and this is the donor site. This is where the tissue was harvested. You can see the tight closure. You can see that we're causing ischemia to the edge of the, the, edge of the skin or in our closure. Not only do we have deep uh, sutures in place, but we also have staples and also additional sutures on the surface due to the fact that this wound is pretty much ischemic from the tightness that is present. So should I be using any type of negative pressure to enhance the healing for this particular patient? When we look at the 
criteria. Is it at risk for seroma formation? It is because there's a large undermining that you're, you can't see from the donor side where the tissue was harvested from. Is it at risk for adhesion? Yes, we have a tight closure. We have not necessarily compromised flap, but the flaps of the donor side are compromised because of the tight closure. And more importantly, we're dealing with history of radiation in the area. So uh, what we decided to do is apply the negative pressure incisional management device directly over the incision. As you see, this uh, now is covering the entire donor side incision. This is a patient now at post-op day seven. And what you can appreciate is the removal of the device right at the time of when this picture was taken. It's very interesting to see the area that we were most concerned about, and you can see the induration in the area, and this is what the negative pressure helped with. And you can also appreciate the imprint of the uh, dressing that is present there. This is the same patient follow-up at post-op day 24, went on healing uh, without any issues. There's a small scab there where the sutures were present. However, the patient was started for adjuvant therapy immediately at post-op day 30 as planned. And we were very excited to get this patient through her treatment cycle so efficiently. Next patient is a very complex case. It's a recurrent vulvar cancer times three. These are very devastating to the patient, very complicated cases to reconstruct. You're dealing with a 51-year-old female with recurrent vulvar cancer, BMI of 39, and a history of radiation to the area all the way into the pelvis. So pelvic exoneration is planned. Patient has had bilateral gracilis flaps that I had done several years ago, and you can see uh, the scars in the medial thigh. But now it's a planned ileal conduit and colostomy, so those flaps will be gone. This will be a total unblocked resection. The case is planned with our oncological gynecological surgeons, and the X marks are going to be one for colostomy as well as for an ileal conduit where the new urinary bladder will be. This is the actual resection that you're seeing. You have bowel, rectum, everything's been removed, ovaries, uterus, and lastly, the vagina that's pointed to. It's a complex area that was removed. This is the area we're looking at where the vagina uh, used to be, and you can see the rectum is gone. Uh, the picture on the right side where the arrow is pointing, that's our access to the abdomen. You see suction in the abdomen that communicates now directly with the opening that you know, you're looking at. So as you see, it is a complex case. A lot of things can go wrong here in terms of complications go. We have, we're doing our best to minimize uh, these uh, complications for the patient. So with that flap from the abdomen, this is a rectus flap uh, that's been taken and you can see it's the epithelialized. That's gonna be the covering to her pelvis that you're seeing the blue dot is signifying the pedicle that's coming in and supplying the entire area. This is her after, after she's been closed with the flap that is present. Now because it gets interesting. Um, we have an ileal conduit in the field. We have a colostomy in the field. And we have an incision that is present in a, a, both in a horizontal and vertical manner. And what should we even be thinking about using an incisional device on the donor side? Because that would be a devastating complication if we something were to happen. And of course, when you look at our specific chart, you can see that this patient is not only at high risk for seroma formation for the given comorbidities she has, but she's also at a high risk for dehiscence and for the concerns that have already been discussed. But more importantly, what we want to do is we want to manage it. And the reason I have soiling in here, this is a perfect example. What do we mean by soiling and in protecting our incision? Our incision uh, that you're looking at is covered now with negative pressure device. And the colostomy to patient's left and to your right is really the biggest concern because you're dealing with gram-negative bacteria that can be tremendously devastating in a wound and tremendously difficult to treat if we were to get to the surface of the wound. If the wound gets contaminated, that would be our biggest concern in this case. 
when you're thinking about an incision that is widely open and you have a colostomy right next to it, no better dressing than covering it for as long as possible we can, whether if it's seven days or 14 days, with something that was sterilely placed, in this case, the negative pressure device, to ensure that when the colostomy changes are performed, anything is being done to either area, the incision is fully protected. And that's what we mean by any risk of soiling. You may also think about, should we be placing the negative pressure device prior to maturing the colostomy? And that's a very reasonable uh, idea. After this case, that became our routine. We cover the incision now and allow the maturation of the ostomy to occur after the incision has been protected by negative pressure device and it's been activated with 125 milliliters of mercury. These are three months post-op. See, that's our vertical incision. This is her flap, nicely healed and the patient went on for additional uh, treatments for her recurrent vulvar cancer. Here's an example of a 32-year-old female with nectritizing fasciitis that underwent initial debridement by our colleagues. They uh, called us for management of the wound, and this is a post-op day one following debridement and removal of the umbilicus. Comorbidities included diabetes type 2 and BMI of 40. Immediately, a negative pressure installation was started. You may ask yourself why. This is a perfect wound to start cleansing while the patient's being optimized, making sure that the wound is clean and followed with final closure. This is post-op day 14, following three days of installation therapy. You can see there's a very healthy wound. There's no additional necrotic tissue. Even the subcutaneous tissue appears to be healthy. There's times that the subcutaneous tissue may actually look ischemic because of the fact that the adipocytes are so hypertrophied and those would be, have to be removed at a time like this because if there is really no blood supply around, in, around the adipocytes, uh, those are going to lead to further complications if the wound is closed. We did a delayed primary closure with a clean wound with a JP drain that was uh, placed there. Now, big question here is, do we treat this with an incisional device. Well, I'm, I'm sure by now you know because every patient in this series has been treated with negative pressure incisional management device. And the risk factors are listed here and it just makes sense to further enhance her healing based on everything you heard from Dr. Singh earlier in this lecture. Here's the application of the incisional device, JP drain usually want to make sure that the drains are far away from the incision to ensure proper placement of the dressing. This is a patient at three weeks, a post-delay primary closure. This is a patient at four months. And interesting enough, seven years later or six and a half years later, the patient reached out and actually posted on Instagram tagging us her scars. She's given her entire history. It says on there December 19, 2012 is when she was originally presented to the emergency room. She was treated with the incisional device and she posted a picture a month after her surgery, her scar, and this is six and a half years after her surgery and she continues to do well. So this is really exciting to see patients remembering the additional treatments that were done with the advances of the technology that's available to us and we tremendously appreciate this patient sharing her, not only her story so publicly, but also her pictures. This is a very interesting case uh, for several reasons. Uh, and this is what really helped us open our eyes and transition to utilizing negative pressure incisional management in breast reconstruction. But this is a lower extremity reconstruction this particular case. This is a 51-year-old male who's 12 months post-distal tibial ORIF. Uh, patient had prior infected hardware at the, at the lateral aspect, which was removed approximately six months ago, but now this presentation is new with infected hardware medially, where you're looking at. This is her medial distal lower extremity. 
Uh, these, the holes are from the screws when the hardware was removed at this visit. You can see there's soft tissue deficit. There is bone that's exposed. And patient has the comorbidity, smoker, one vessel inflow, peripheral vascular disease, and diabetes. When we're discussing one vessel inflow, that's the one vessel that's supplying the distal extremity. The last thing we want to go after is for a free flap and jeopardize the entire extremity. So at that time, what we decided to pursue is cover the periosteum and leave the soft tissue exposed and use a bilaminate skin substitute in this picture. But as you see, uh, we have a compromised flap. The distal end of this particular rotational flap is completely compromised. And this was very early on in our experience with incisional device. And some of you may have seen this case. The, what happened to us at that time, when we go back and think about what negative pressure does and what Dr. Singh explained in terms of blood flow, as well as edema reduction, just basic science from the original Moroccan studies, we decided that the best optimal course for this particular patient would be to cover this particular flap with negative pressure devices. And the donor site where you see the silver granny foam, it's sitting on the bilaminate skin substitute and the incisional device is sitting directly on top of the compromised flap as well as the incision to enhance healing. JP drain is once again for the subcutaneous tissue, the underlying area to make sure we're not uh, building a seroma under the actual flap. So one week later, we decided to bring the patient back to the operating room because I was expecting for a major debridement of the area and prepared to do a larger surgery. But this is exactly what we saw. That's why it's a very similar background. The patient is in the operating room. I did not expect for this flap to look this good. You can see the imprint of the negative pressure incisional dressing. It, the flap is completely viable. The incisions are healing. And you can only imagine the excitement that we had. Wow, this flap actually survived. And what we know from the science is actually working in this case. So what did we do? We put it right back up on the patient and send them home. If it's working, why not continue for another seven days? Patient returns 14 days now. This is the second time we've treated it with negative pressure and edema reduction, enhanced healing, improve, improve the blood flow to the area. Why not continue treating it if we know it's working and it's improving? I think one of the most important things in managing uh, cases like this when we're dealing with a complicated or rather compromised flap is to always think about uh, treating longer than seven days and go up to 14 days and why not sometimes up to 21 days if we can do the regular dressing changes. I did not remove the incisional uh, dressing uh, prior to seven days uh, to maximize the healing that needs to take place in these uh, patients and obviously the benefits of the negative pressure. The patient has six weeks and this is the patient uh, finally healed with a skin graft in this picture. And we actually published this just because the importance of salvaging a compromised flap with the principles that we have learned from the original Morocco studies that have been published. So that made us realize if we can salvage a flap, especially in lower extremity complex case of re for reconstruction, why not start using it in mastectomy and breast reconstruction patients? We're constantly dealing with the same issues. So when we started saying, where does this fit in my practice? We started thinking about all these particular areas that we have mentioned in the past actually pertain also to breast reconstruction. We're using synthetics. There's always large undermining and there's times we operate on high BMI patients. So uh, are they at risk for distance? Yes, because we deal with sometimes more complex patients with comorbidities. So how do we make this fit in our breast practice where it just became routine for us to start using it in our breast reconstruction mastectomy patients? What's the problem in breast cases? Look at the large undermining, the devices that are being used, in this case, ADM that's being used, the large incisions that are present 
that are need to be managed. Look at the flaps that are present at the same time that can have a lot of issues in terms of being compromised from uh, due to poor vascular supply as well as edema. These patients go through a lot in this surgery, so therefore maximizing what we do at time of surgery and really protecting our investment is very important. The process of device-based reconstruction always starts with the technique, so what type of mastectomy, then what type of reconstruction are we going to be over, up, over or under muscle, what kind of device are we going to utilize, and what kind of soft tissue support are we going to utilize, and what I add to what, how are we going to protect this investment, what are we going to do to manage the incision. Uh, Dr. Sigalov, Maxwell, and myself initially published on this when we had our original um, 13 patients with 25 breasts. And what we started seeing when we started placing the negative pressure device on our mastectomy patients, that our drain outputs were less and they're coming out sooner. And that was only just a pilot study that we had done. So we started thinking about the same patient of, of four years uh, post-op. So we decided um, next was for us to start thinking about, can we salvage compromised flaps if we're faced with it? So during every mastectomy, tissue perfusion assessment was introduced uh, many years ago, and we started utilizing that and understanding what can be done with the negative pressure device. This is a higher BMI patient with breast cancer. This is the tissue perfusion ICG angiography following the reconstruction. You can see there's tremendous amount of um, area of non-perfusion. Everything on the screen that you see that's black, there's no blood supply. Everything white has a blood supply. So that's the actual incision that you're looking at, the vertical incision. And I'm, you're gonna see a pen come in and mark around the areas of concern. Why did we mark around the areas of concern? Because we're gonna recover them we did our own study and followed these patients in clinic and making sure that once the dressing is removed at seven days, how are we dealing with additional issues? You see us marking all this area of concern. And this is the patient with the markings that post-op they save them with removal. You can see there, there's definitely area of concern still present, but that flap is viable on each side. You may ask yourself, would you have put another dressing on at post-op day seven? Yes, ideally, if I had the opportunity, I would have. But back then, that was not available to us because the patient would have had to have a home vac or a home negative pressure device for them uh, to continue the additional treatments because these are the disposable dressings that we're utilizing. Post-op day seven, post-op day 21, and the patient went on to heal. And this is very exciting to see. Yes, just like we saw in our lower extremity, we can also salvage some of the compromised flaps that we are seeing. Now, if this entire breast was black and there was not, no perfusion based on ICG and geography, then we would be in trouble. We cannot salvage a breast that is completely compromised. There has to be some blood flow coming in and maybe some smaller areas are compromised. Those are the areas that we can target. That brings us to the question of what do we do with the nipple? There's been a lot of concern about covering the nipple. Well, one problem with the nipple is that they, it communicates with the outside world. After a mastectomy, everything has been removed underneath. All you're seeing under the nipple is really is the remaining, the open ducts that have maybe possibly left uh, are still present, but they're communicating with the outside world. So there's no subcutaneous tissue underneath, and all we have underneath would be the actual uh, device that we have placed. In this case, could be ADM, it could be an implant, whatever it may be. We want to make sure that we protect it until we have a sealed area before that patient, for example, takes a shower or is exposed to the outside world. So covering the nipple is extremely important in these cases to minimize contamination deep to the biologics that have been placed. So we routinely covered the nipples with the smaller dressings that were available to us. We also went back and looked at our data and we wanted to know uh, where we saving number one money with the devices that we were using and where our outcomes better. And when you look at the series, you have 331 in the negative pressure group and then we have 334 patients in standard care, which in this case was stereocircle zero form. 
uh, we saw a significant reduction in complications in the uh, negative pressure group. We also saw significant reduction in the maximum drain days that we saw in the negative pressure group. You've seen this meta-analysis by, by Dr. Singh and I and, and colleagues, and I don't need to go into detail, but more importantly, what the meta-analysis showed from the 11 RCTs that the patients were over 2.5 times more likely to get a surgical infection if negative pressure incision management was not used. The economic analysis that Dr. Maxwell and I published specifically discusses the benefits and cost savings. And it's a, it, you can, well, I'll give you the reference uh, where you can access all these papers and there's a cost savings of approximately $218 per patient. And this is a very conservative way of measuring it. We also with Dr. Gupta and Dr. Orga, we discussed the challenges of these cases and the management of these surgical site occurrences and what that means for our overall healthcare system. Where can you find all these articles for additional reading? If you go to the Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery website, the, actual, the journal website under supplements, when it says articles and issues, you can access the January 2019 and specifically dedicated to close incision negative pressure therapy as listed there. And your, your, all these articles that were discussed, you will find in there at no charge and you're welcome to uh, uh, read all of them. So where does this really fit in our practice? Well, I hope it makes it very clear that when we're managing these complicated patients, it's quite complex, the post-operative management in some of these cases. We've gone really through a major evolution in soft tissue management. I don't want us to only be thinking about incisional management, but more soft tissue management where we, in the past, we used to put gauze. Then we moved on to tape. Then we said, well, glue and mesh may be more beneficial. Then we started focusing on incision management. But now, my opinion, it's more than just the incision, it's the surrounding soft tissue. And how do we best manage that to achieve our most optimal outcomes? So think beyond incisions with the dressings that you see. This is really our final step to managing and protecting the investment that's been done underneath this particular dressing. There's no better dressing to really cover it with when you're getting the benefit of negative pressure at the same time, which been just been placed in this very sterile environment. Okay, in conclusion, you can see from the examples of that you just saw as well as Dr. Singh's input of the high risk group of patients or can be quite complex. Negative pressure devices are not miracle devices, but they go hand in hand when a well-planned and a well-executed operative procedure is done based on sound surgical principles. With that, I'm gonna open it up to questions. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you, everyone, and good afternoon again, uh, Dr. Singh. After that wonderful lecture, uh, I, I really want to go back to you, one of your papers that you originally published on the mechanisms of on seeing the blood flow and seeing it objectively, the case that you presented on ventral hernia and where you had measured the blood flow of use of Provena for negative pressure incisional management device directly on improving the blood flow. And can you describe that case? Because that was such an amazing case. And I, I really want to discuss that case and why you think we're seeing decreased surgical side infections with these dressings. Thank you, Alan. And uh, hello, everybody. Uh, you know, that was an interesting um, case and case series, which we presented at a local chapter of the American College of Surgeons, but it was in ventral hernia patients where we were using these closed incision negative pressure therapy dressings. And I realized that these hernia patients are still in the hospital five days later. Uh, and in the original operation, I had actually used SPY or ICG angiography to help guide the debridement of my skin flaps. Then I would apply the dressing. Then I realized they're still here for five days waiting their return of bowel function. And it occurred to me that I could simply remove the dressing and repeat the ICG imaging. But more than just simply repeat and compare 
that technology allows you to give quantitative analysis and actually compare data. And what we found over and over and over again was this signal increase in the fluorescence. Um, in other words, an indirect uh, test measuring the blood flow or perfusion. Um, so it was one of the first times we got the sense that blood flow or perfusion is actually increasing under these dressings. And in my humble opinion, I think that's probably the reason why we see across the literature in every surgical specialty that there is a decrease in surgical site infection. I mean, because it really is an amazing thing to think how impacting surgical site infection and ultimately it's, it's addressing. Um, and so we gotta really explain that. And I think the negative pressure ultimately is improving perfusion, particularly right where you need it, right at the incision line, right at the marginal tissue that could be the most vulnerable. Um, and, and ultimately I think that that's what is reducing surgical site infection. It could also be lymph, uh, in, increase in lymphatic clearance. It could also be just a simple fact that the dressing is on for a week instead of two days. Um, so there's probably a few good things happening under this dressing, but I think it's the increase in perfusion more than anything. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, you bring up such an important point and for the audience, I mean, we're keeping these incisions, uh, we're covering the incisions under sterile conditions and they're remaining sterile for one week. Now, the benefits of negative pressure we're seeing around the skin, and I, I wanna go back again and credit Dr. Singh on the first time when he quantitatively analyzed the blood flow surrounding the dressing when it was removed. That was an eye-opening case for many of us. Well, we know negative pressure impro improves perfusion, but not until we actually saw it. So it was definitely very exciting to see, but I agree with you, you bring up a great point. There are multiple factors, perfusion is one, lymphatics probably two, but more importantly also, we're keeping the dressing sterile. Alan, let me ask you a question. Since you're one of the founding fathers of pre-pectoral breast reconstruction, and you're a world famous breast reconstruction surgeon. What do you think is the main benefit of these dressings, including the newer one that covers the whole breast and is specifically designed for breast reconstruction? How is that helping your practice? I think to be honest with you, as you have talked about it too, keeping the dressing intact and sterile underneath is important. And what's also helping is we're doing not only incision management where we're managing soft tissue and you've already alluded to that. Covering a larger surface area is very important, in, in especially when it comes to breast reconstruction. Breast reconstruction, we're dealing with so many unknowns and we have a device that we've placed, we have ADMs that we have placed and now we're hoping all of this is gonna heal nicely and, and hopefully not have any complications because the fact that a complication is a very costly issue is when it comes to breast reconstruction. Now, the question to you is not only we're, we're seeing it, that benefit in our breast reconstruction as a soft tissue management, do you think we're also seeing better outcomes in terms of ADM integration, drain output that we've seen anecdotally, but that's at least I have seen. Have you seen that as well? Yeah, I, I think uh, I lost you just for a quick second. Could you repeat that question? Yes, so a, anecdotally, we've seen some ADM uh, improved integration possibly, at least that's what we think we're seeing. Are you seeing that more? And do you think that the dressing, the larger surface area is helping us in better integration in these cases? Yeah, I, I think that that's a very uh, interesting observation. I've had the same observation. There is no available scientific literature or publication that's looking at that directly uh, or no report that I'm aware of that's showing these dressings result in better integration of the ADM specifically under mastectomy flaps. But I think that it does, uh, particularly when I have placed an expander and I go back to exchange the expander for a silicone gel implant. I have definitely noticed a better integration, earlier integration, um, less need to take a pair of curved Mayo scissors and chomp out a piece of the ADM that may be flopping around. Um, so I would love to figure out a way to quantify that, but anecdotally, at least in this early experience, 
I think that specifically is one of the main benefits of the larger dressing covering the whole breast. And uh, Dutch Singh, so let, let's, let me ask this question too that always comes up. How, does it, how do you think it works? We know about the Provena itself, it doesn't compress down. Negative pressure doesn't do that. It does, it starts, it's, an, it's a different direction. It pulls everything up. So do you think uh, the ADM or anything we're putting up is being uh, compressed better in that, but we're, of course we're not pulling it down, we're pulling everything up. And are we seeing a better outcome because of that? I think it's simply because uh, of shearing, like any skin graft, and by the way, an ADM ultimately is a skin graft, uh, technically, uh, one of the things that can prevent its regeneration is shearing. So I think it's like a bolster, it's stabilizing everything and preventing shearing of the wound bed, which in this case is the mastectomy flap with the skin graft, which in this case is the underlying ADM. Dr. Gabriel, we have to wrap up, it's 425. We wanna thank you and uh, the North American Center for CME for organizing all of this and have a great day, everybody. Thank you.